In the global 500, there are more senior executives named John than women. I'll say it again slowly. Wow. In the global 500, the 500 biggest companies in the world to date, there are more na- uh, senior executives with the name of John than women. Those are the 500 biggest companies in the world, and we really have a ways to go. Dear Balancer, I know you're a determined person on the lookout for ways to live a more fulfilling and balanced life, but you're busy. And if we're being honest, that busyness often comes at the expense of your priorities. The Balance Theory podcast is made to teach busy bees just like you how to find and own your own definition of balance so that you can become unapologetic in how you choose to spend your time. I'm your host, Erica, and together, let's find your unique balance. Alrighty, Balancers, today's guest is an organizational consultant and keynote speaker with over 30 years of experience. He has also served as a personal consultant to CEOs and leaders of large organizations and is on a mission to end workplace exclusion and make significant inroads towards social justice. His new book, Winning with Underdogs, which is coming out tomorrow, is teaching employers how to build a workplace that's more inclusive and more effective and something I'm so, so excited to dive into today within the realm and context of balance in the workplace. I'm very honored to welcome Gil Winch to the Balance Theory podcast today. Gil, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. No, likewise. It's, um, it's really nice to chat with you this morning. Now, tell the listeners a little bit about where you are and where you're chatting to me from this morning. Well, I'm, uh, I'm in Israel in the basement, um, which is pretty <laughs> much the only quiet place we can have because I have two dogs that can... Uh, sometimes uh, make a bit of noise. So I'm in Israel in the basement uh, in summer. Um, and, but, but, but I'm good and, uh, and I'm looking forward to our chat. Likewise, I'm really curious to, I guess, understand how you fell into this line of work. So I guess from my intro, uh, the listeners will get a little bit of a feel that you're now working within the space of creating inclusion and inspiring and empowering people to really understand that on a deeper level. But I'm curious to know how you sort of got to this point. Was it something you sort of did straight after your studies or was it through your work, um, you know, your speaking and your coaching that you sort of led to this this path? Because I feel like it's quite a niche line. I'm just curious how you ended up working in it. Um, well, I, I originally studied to be a clinical psychologist, but... Um... I, I, I don't have the, the correct temperament to, to, to listen to people and, uh, uh, um, and, and help them solve their problems uh, gradually. I'm, I'm, I'm much more about, well, let's do this and let's do that. And I, I, I did a PhD in organizational psychology and I, I worked with an awful lot of organizations along the way. And I kept on noticing that a lot of people aren't part of our workplace. They're part of our communities, but you don't see them in our workplace. And in, in different countries, it's different groups, but there are some groups um, that, that, that are out of work, pretty much out of work globally. And, and that was something that stuck with me. And then at some point, um, pretty much around 20 years ago, uh, someone told me a statistic that, that sort of stuck with me. And the statistic was that people with disabilities worldwide, especially those with severe disabilities, are pretty much out of work uh, as a group. Uh, they're chronically unemployed. And the people with severe disabilities, maybe maybe 10% of them are, are actually working, and the rest aren't. 
And I went home and 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 it stuck with me and I, I I couldn't I couldn't shake thinking of it and and a few things came to mind in, in the following days. One of them is that we have taken as a society the the weakest amongst us, at least medically, emotionally or physically, and we've imposed upon them two huge other calamities, unnecessary ones. We've turned them into the most poorest people among us. Because once they're out of work, they need pensions to survive. And I don't know what 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 minimum what disability pensions are in Australia, for instance, but but in most countries they are well below minimum wage, and minimum wage is there so you can have the minimum to survive. And disability pensions are way below that. How are they in Australia, by the way? I have to be honest. It's it's not something um, I know. Um, I'm not. I'm not actually across uh, it. Then, then I would be horrifically surprised or pleasantly surprised if if they're over minimum <laughs> wage. But the only place that there are there are good pensions for some of the disabled po- population is in Swit- is in uh, uh, Switzerland, basically, and not for all kinds of people with disabilities. But um, so so that's one thing we've taken people who are the weakest amongst us physically, and we've helped them become the poorest amongst us. And, and, and the second thing we've done is we've totally isolated them. I mean, you, you finish mm-hmm. school at some point, everybody goes to, to uni or to, or to work, and then they stay at home day after day. Nobody wanting you, nowhere to go. And the effect that can have on someone's personality and sense of worth and confidence and, and anything you want to think of must be horrific, I thought to myself. So what we've actually done is we've taken our weakest link and it made it ever so more weaker and frail. And mm. it's Amplifies so cruel. that marginalization. It does, and it's so cruel, and it creates so much worldwide suffering. I thought 10 to 15% of every population are, are, are disabled. Those, that's, that's close to a billion people worldwide, and most of them are mm. locked up in the prison of their homes. And that was one train of thought. But another train of thought was, well, how could that be? Because we're not doing um, the agriculture uh, industry work of 100 and 200 years ago. What, you know, most people, what do they do at home all day when they're unemployed? It's a combination of phones and screens, right? Well, what do most people do at work all day? Most people do have a combination of phones and screens. Why are these people so unemployed globally? Why is someone in a mm. wheelchair unemployed? I mean, everything else, you know, their mind is the same. So, so why are they not working? Eighty uh, percent, mm. I found out, of people who are legally um, blind um, have some sight left and can function on computers. Why are they out of a job? A third of the disabled mm. people in the world. Um, and some countries don't really count emotional disabilities, but a third of uh, uh, the disabled people in the world have emotional disabilities, and most of them are compliant with medication. Could you explain what medication. that means? Sorry, um, they have schizophrenia, like an emotional they have disability. serious uh, yeah. uh, 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 um, personality disorders, and uh, diagnosable ones, and they can be really severely right. disabled. But most of them are compliant with their medication. You won't know. That you're speaking to someone who's disabled. Mm-hmm. Why, why are they out of a, out of work? It just it didn't add up. The ninety percent of them being out of work, where of the severely disabled people, where if you look at the disabilities, they don't explain that chronic unemployment, 
And mm. when that occurred to me, I started, I started getting, found myself getting excited because I thought, well, if, if it's not something to do with the actual disabilities, then it's solvable because I don't know how to fix mm. disabilities. But if it's not the disabilities that are keeping them out of work, it's solvable. And I started interviewing yeah. people with disabilities to start trying try to map one of the real reasons people uh, uh, with disabilities are out of, out of a job. And um, I'll put it this way. Most governments operate, I think all governments pretty much operate on the following train of thought. If someone is disabled and he's out of a job, maybe he's lacking an adjustment, a ramp or software will provide that. Most governments will provide that. If they don't lack such, such an adjustment, maybe they lack opportunity and most governments will provide opportunity. But if they don't lack anything, an adjustment, and they have had opportunity and it hasn't worked, well, then obviously they lack ability. And uh, next is sort of the train of thought of most governments. And I started interviewing people with disabilities. I wanted to interview employers. I couldn't find many, I, I have to admit. Um, and I started mapping out all the reasons I heard that people with disabilities are out of a job. And some of the reasons I heard, some I inferred, and 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 it was around a hundred people, maybe I I, uh, I interviewed. By now, it's the number's gone up to around fifteen thousand. Not just me, that my you know uh, um, my staff as well. So that's really really robust insofar as data. And basically, it all comes down to three clusters of problems. That don't, they're the reasons that people are, are are out of work worldwide. They're all solvable. And in order to prove that they're solvable, I figured I'll open a for-profit company. And it should be a for-profit company because I want to convince people that people with disabilities can reach regular productivity. And if it would be in a foundation, people would say, yeah, well, you know, it's a foundation. It's not real life. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'll open a for-profit company. Um, we'll call it a social company because we don't want to presume to strive for maximum profit. We don't. And no one in the company can earn more than five times anyone else. So if management wants to earn more, make everybody earn more. Uh, so it's a social, real social business. Um, but if I, I thought if I staff it totally, 100%, with people with severe disabilities, most who have never worked before, and I'll be able to prove regular productivity, um, then I will have a wonderful showcase to prove to the, the world, employers, people with disabilities themselves, governments that... But 10 to 15% of our brothers and sisters and kids and parents that are really rotting in their homes and, and, and have no life whatsoever are really miserable. They're not there because they lack ability. They're there because we lack understanding of what they need in order to bring their ability to the fro sort of thing. So, so that was the initial idea I, yeah. I set out with. And in order to be able to prove regular productivity, I decided we'll be a call center, an outsourced call center. Because then there'll be many other teams doing exactly what we do and everything is, is measured and all the, every metric is measured. In a call center, you'll always be able to prove, I thought, that you know, our teams are doing as well as the other teams, maybe even better. So, yeah. so, so that yeah. was my big idea of how I can really change the world insofar as real inclusion is. Because at the end of the, 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 the exclusion um, range are people with severe disabilities, they're unemployed worldwide. Ex-cons are unemployed worldwide. 
You don't have that many ex-cons in lots of countries. In America, it's 10%, just under 10% of the adult population. I mean, that's an awful lot of wow. people who have been yeah. to jail and they, they have they're, they're, um, seven times, nearly seven times more unemployed than anybody else. So it's like huge numbers over there of people who are just sitting at home because they had one minor transgression, but no one's willing to look at them. So there are other groups mm. that, that, that are excluded, but I think the most challenging would be the severely disabled people. So I thought I'd start a business with 100% um, management and staff and employees severely disabled. And that's what I started yep. around 15 years ago. Wow, I'm um, I'm incredibly inspired by your your vision and and your company, and I definitely want to ask you a couple more questions around that. But I just wanted to share that, and I think this fits really really nicely with, I guess, your experience and the, the learnings you've had over the years in your own, um, I guess, research. I interviewed a couple of weeks ago an Australian woman. Her name is Lisa Cox, and uh, at the age of 24, she had a stroke which rendered her uh, disabled. Before that, she had, you know, perfectly what she describes able life and then she had a stroke and they basically told her that uh, the, the way she described it, I'm just paraphrasing her, was she was a vegetable, she was never going to walk again and over time she started to slowly and gradually get these motor skills back. She's now in a wheelchair but her mind is active 100% and she was quite high up in marketing at the time when when this change in her life occurred and she was explaining to me in in her lens and her point of view that uh, the general society general population has this mentality that somebody with a disability they're either going to be a Paralympian and go down the road of championing you know, <laughs> their disability in a way like that or they're going to lead a miserable life and she's really trying to pioneer that well there's actually this really beautiful middle ground where She's still able to do all the work she was doing before. She's just now in a wheelchair and she really um, is quite humble and, in, and open in explaining her experience that, you know, once she was trying to re-enter the workforce, they would hire her, but she would be, you know, taping up boxes when she had all this marketing management strategy experience. And she kind of thought, screw it, I'm just going to start my own company. And now she has a successful business with people working under her and she's doing incredible work trying to champion uh, diversity within the media. But I feel her story is probably similar to a lot of the stories you've heard, and that is it really amplifies the um, the misalignment between, I think, what many people view as disabilities. It's the misunderstanding and, and the disconnection between well, what that actually means for the ability of a person. And, and I totally take your point with, I guess, the flow and how the government sees it. But I think if we take it one step back, it's also it's the misunderstanding. And then I think it's the inability to know how to actually cater for that so you know and and I think it's exactly what you said and it's really interesting if everybody thinks about it the majority of people that actually work from home nowadays sitting in a chair all day if you had somebody who you know was 100% with it in terms of their psychology in terms of their emotional health it was just a physical impairment there's seriously no reason why they should be excluded from the workforce but I think it is this overarching um, inability I think to understand and cater for these marginalized groups in society, which I think is so, such an important discussion to have and why I'm so excited to have you on. But just before I dive into, I suppose, where we can talk about the actual hiring pro process and workplace structure so people have a little bit more of a tangible understanding of how they can navigate this and, as you call it, find the diamonds in the rough, um, I'm really curious about this social company. So is that something you still run? And, um, 
you know, you, you mentioned that you found that productivity was the same. Is that, is that, has that been sustained results for you? Do you still have a hundred percent of staff working in there as people with disabilities? Has it expanded? Can you tell me a little bit about where the company's at today? Yeah, so um, we started out with with 100% people with disabilities, and I, I never thought of building like any kind of like large or even medium-sized company. I just thought maybe 20, 30 people will prove the point, like a couple of teams, and we can prove the point. Um, but we grew, and uh, and uh, after a few years, I realized that we should we should be inclusive. And I opened our doors to anybody who really wanted to work for us but we're still 100% underdogs. We have lots of cons and ex-cons. We have some people coming from prison to work for us and, and we have uh, ex-cons. We, don't, um, we won't take somebody who has intentional violence in their background, um, uh, rape, pedophile, murder, uh, uh, you know, stuff like that. We pretty much give everybody else a chance. Um, and we've never had any kind of problems with, with, with that, that population at all. Um, so now, nowadays, it's about two-thirds of the company are severely disabled management staff and, and employees. Average disability would probably be around 75 to 80%. But the other uh, third of the company is not disabled at all. Um, and, but they're all marginalized groups. They're ex-cons, they're minorities, they're single parents, Older people, we used to call them over 60, but I'm really getting up there. So we, 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 we transition to older people. <laughs> We're pushing that back now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we have people joining us at 70, and it's like the first time they've worked. It's quite amazing, actually. Um, and we're about 200 and something uh, employees nowadays. Um, wow. And in, in many ways, we are considered the best outsource, uh, professionally outsource company that our customers work with because it takes us much longer to hit targets. Um, if, if someone else would hit, other teams would hit targets within two to three months, it'll take us probably six months, maybe seven, maybe five. It depends on how complex the work is. But if you think about it, what we're basically doing is we're taking the Paralympic team to the regular Olympics and they're on the podium often. Uh, some in in some areas yeah. we're better than all the competition because in many places in Israel as well um, call center is student work so there's a huge turnover there and we have about a third or a quarter of the turnover and lots of people come as a career which which you don't really have in Israel so so the longevity of the teams uh, is one thing and Apparently, when you, and I, I thought this would happen, but it does, when you give someone a chance, sort of a get out of jail free card, they use it. And they will give, most people will give everything they can because that's their pathway to a normal life. They're earning three times as much as they did just, just with their pension. And, and they, have, they, they have a society around them. We have five couples who have met and married uh, uh, in the call center, wow. which I never managed to get through uh, with dry eyes. I, uh, they just, it just, and not always someone disabled with someone disabled. It's, it's, it's the culture in the, in, in the call center is it's people. And we don't really care at all. Beliefs, religious beliefs, color, uh, uh, the amount of appendages you have, what your preferences are, it's people. And even managers 
are people, and there are so much people that as part of our culture, managers have one thing they can do that other employees can't, and that's make decisions. But it doesn't make them better people. So they're not allowed to talk down to in any kind of way uh, uh, to anyone else. You can only can only use force in the company upwards. You can scream at your manager. That they can scream at their manager, and everybody can scream at me. <laughs> and actually, you wouldn't believe how many people <laughs> utilize that uh, 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 that Option. thing because because they really have to. You know, they have to. We have we have people with horrific life stories until they joined us, and we're a very happy place. But some people come with such huge baggage and it's so difficult to, to hear sometimes what they went through. So people need where they can vent and, and I'm, I'm at the top of the venting totem pole sort of thing. Food chain. So that's where we are now. <laughs> we have four branches. We operate in three languages, five religions, about 220 or 30 employees is where we're at. That's incredible. That's incredible. I think um, it's so easy to take for granted how much work or having a job forms a part of our fulfillment and therefore our identity. And so I think I love what you just said that, you know, we're just people at the end of the day and that's the reality of the matter. We can, you know, even though we sit here and we talk about inclusion and, and marginalised groups, I think we all have to remember that people are people at the end of the day and everybody has a right to be a part of a community um, but And I do think that a lot of people, especially in 2022, are much more open to this idea. But I think maybe what has prevented a full-blown revolution is people not being sure how to do it in an uh, emotionally sensitive or correct way. I think, you know, a yeah. lot of people may be hesitant because they're just not sure how to um, correctly, I suppose, cater for potential candidates who who may have different needs or adjust the corporate culture to that and so that's why I'm quite excited I know your new book coming out tomorrow actually is all about this so I guess I wanted to start off with asking you what you personally feel are the flaws in the current hiring processes or slash workplace structures that are really preventing businesses from winning with the underdogs as you call them Okay, I'd be happy to answer that. And it really, really ties in strongly to balance. Um, we homo sapiens, and even before we were homo sapiens, we have been providing within a tribe for millions of years and for hundreds of thousands of years of us being homo sapiens or hominids. Um, and in a tribe, you can have fights and, and disagreements, but basically you're known and you're cared for and everyone has a job. It's basically only been the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution where people are leaving their homes and their tribes and they're working elsewhere where no one really knows who they are. There's no caring whatsoever. And we are such social animals, but that the statistics are, and, and they are very, very, very strong statistics, that most employees in the world suffer work-related emotional problems like anxiety and depression and isolation. Large percentages of employees talk about being harassed at work and even bullied at work, like in junior high. And we, we, we're social animals. We, we don't know how to thrive in cold, in cold, uncaring cultures that just view us as an asset. 
We thrive when we are in our communities and there's a warm environment around us. That's what we, we, we evolved. That's how we evolved to be. And we actually um, used to do a really, really difficult uh, physical labor. But, and we don't do that anymore. It's, it's much more normal, even if you do work physically. But we've exchanged the, the, the physical labor to emotional, very, very strong emotional uh, uh, sort of labor. Because when you worked in the fields, no one emailed you at the end of the day to send in a report during the weekend. And no one told you, no, you can't go home and see your kids because I'm missing something on my desk. and stuff. You, you didn't have that. So many people are out of balance with their work and life. And, and it's expected in, in, in the corporate world. And mm. it does two things. It makes most people miserable. It makes the corporate world lose an awful lot of money because unhappy employees, disengaged employees, like most of the world is statistically, um, are, are like 25% less productive, for instance. You could be doing 25% more business with the same staff if you just treated them differently. So the, the, the general answer to how you get everybody included in the workplace is if you, if you change your culture to one of community caring and you, you cater to employees' emotional needs. You have companies, successful companies, they have lavish cafeterias and, and plush leather chairs, but what does it matter how plush the leather chair is you're sitting in if someone's belittling you and, and, and you haven't seen your wife and kids for so long or your husband because you're so out of balance, what does it matter what cafeteria you drown your sorrows in? You're miserable. And yeah. so many people are miserable at Absolutely. work. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's yeah. the reason. We, we've, we've foregone the emotional well-being that we, we need as social, social animals. And I realized after 10 years of CY that my concept of having... Uh, um, this place I can show people and change ideas and minds and stuff like that and create change, it, it wasn't working. And it wasn't working exactly for the reasons you mentioned. There's know-how we built and we accumulated that without having that know-how, people won't be able to, to, to really open their doors wide and have everybody really utilize those opportunities and succeed. So I decided I have to write mm. it down. Uh, and, and winning with underdogs is, is about that, that. It's about what the real state of diversity in the world is, and in parenthesis, everybody's cheating, uh, and people are cheating, uh, on either not reporting or reporting like skewed. And, and the middle part is the how-to. How do you screen people to actually see what their real potential is? How do you train them? How do you manage them? How do you even fire them, taking into account their emotional needs? And, and the last part of the book is how yeah. we can really move from here to there and create world change. Yeah, well, that's all really, really powerful know-how and I think is uh, much needed to arm, especially businesses with the confidence, I suppose, to start opening their doors to more marginalised groups. Um, and I will try and pick your brain to grab a few tips out of the book. I, I, we don't want to spoil everything. We want people to go out and read it um, in just a moment. But I just did want to share one thing that came to mind just when you were speaking about, you know, the plush leather chairs and the cafeterias because I was working as a corporate lawyer before I uh, resigned and I'm now kind of doing the podcast and I have an e-commerce business just working remotely for the time being. It's been a recent transition. But what I can and wanted to say is one of the or a few of the businesses I worked for in the past have 
what I feel is a very top level approach to wellness. And I think this conversation, even though we are discussing, you know, marginalized groups and in, in widening inclusion in the workplace, I think this general discussion about wellness in the workplace in general can apply to every single person who works in any sort of culture. And I what agree. I found that it was exactly that, you know, it was the fruit once a week. Um, it was a couple wellness programs, but a lot of them I feel were not skewed to give people emotionally what they needed, which was respect for their personal time. And for me, I started to, when I used to interview for law firms, I used to ask them what, what forms a part of your wellness program. And I never really had one that knocked my socks off because I would have much preferred if somebody said to me, well, a part of our wellness program or how we care for our staff is that we ask them how they like to work, you know, so they're very flexible with working arrangements. I do think after the rise of COVID and everyone having to work from home, I think a lot more businesses are open to that. But actually asking that and giving people the option rather than having something set in stone, like with we have flexible working from home, but it's a three, two split or it's a four, one split. I think asking people and respecting how they like to work is one thing. I think removing the culture of, uh, you know, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's just more my thoughts on true wellness in the workplace. You know, some people are really morning people. They're like getting up early, getting things done. You know, what if they could smash out their seven, eight hours starting from a six, seven a.m. morning, clocking off at one or two? That means they can go pick up their kids. Well, then you've got people who prefer working through the night and sleeping in in the morning. So starting to ask people like that and creating a culture where you're, staff members can actually work to their emotional needs, to their um, wellness values, I suppose. And this is really no different to the conversation of how do we cater for marginalized groups who also have their own emotional needs. So I think even opening up that can of worms, I think would be beneficial to staff members worldwide. As you said, I think happy employees are just generally happier and therefore more productive as well. And I do think a little bit of a hurdle is, well, you know, we don't want to lose revenue or drop productivity by tackling this hurdle, which I think we can both agree is is not the reality of it, but I think is a bit of an old school No, it's not the reality of when it. it comes it's, to these. It's actually the opposite of the rea- reality of it. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's that initial pivot, that initial making the shift and committing to uh, the change, which is what's daunting for, for a lot of businesses. So on this note, what tips do you have for either the hiring or the nurturing culture, um, any of the realms of work? What tips do you have for employers on how they can start to change things to cater for marginalized groups? Okay, so I'll try and give two or three tips, um, different ones. Perfect. And one general one maybe, so you can apply it in, in, in various ways. First of all, when, when you're screening people, of adults say they have anxiety when they go through through traditional screening, which they should have because traditional screening is horrific and uh, it really doesn't work. It can only actually predict about 8% of successes, but people hold on to it as if it's the only way to go. Traditional screening has sort of like a fog of war. You don't know what you're coming in for. Um, It's one-sided. You're speaking about prior... So you're speaking about like prior to interview, this is like screening candidates to be interviewed. Is that correct? Yeah, screening and interviewing the candidates. And interviewing. Yeah. 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 I mean, people coming to an interview, they they know nothing about the person who's interviewing them. It's very, very one-sided. It's very judgmental. It raises an awful lot of anxiety. People who have been out of work for a long time 
have anxiety. And the higher the anxiety they have, the less you will able to see what their real potential is. Anxiety in screening and interviewing is like putting muds, a mud on a camera lens. It, it, it just ruins what you're actually there to see. And what you're actually there to mm -hmm. see is not how someone deals with high stress levels and anxiety, because most jobs, you, that's not a, a huge part of what that job needs. You want to see who that person is. Can they work together with you for the long term? How much can they grow into their job and keep on growing and doing it well? You'll see none of that. The higher, the more anxiety you have. So our hiring process is all about lowering anxiety to, to practically a minimum. And if we come up with a new idea, we'll immediately implement it. And I'll just give two or three very short examples. People know what they're coming in for. They can read about it in our, on our website. They can come in with a friend, a dog, a parrot. They can ask to have a redo. They get to grade us at the end of the awesome. interview regarding how much they think we enable them to bring themselves forward. The person interviewing them is a host, and he hosts them, and he shows them around, and he makes them coffee or tea. And the interview starts out with a questionnaire about the love and passions of the candidate because people are most verbal when they discuss things they have love and passion for. Everything, and it starts out in the cafeteria, and, and the whole interview is an escape room. Everything is, is built so there'll be a minimum of anxiety, enjoyment if that's possible, because training is really, uh, screening is really about two people, uh, um, a company and a person, examining if they want to have a mutual uh, a relationship for the long term relationship it's mutual yeah. and, and and it's mutual mm -hmm. but screening and, and 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 traditional screening and interviewing doesn't look at it as a mutual relationship looks at it as do we want you or not and mm -hmm. that's it you can't ask questions play. about yeah and and it, it just it's not good for anyone and companies are getting it wrong it yeah. doesn't matter who yeah. they're interviewing and and more and more companies are starting to realize it so, so that would be uh, one. Yeah, thing. I think that's, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I remember going to an interview and it was like three on one, and um, and I, I, I can, you know, I think I'm quite good in interviews in those kinds of situations, but I can definitely say that that's, you know, com the complete opposite to like a, a nurturing kind of open environment to to really bring forth your personality at the end of the day, which is you need to hire people, not you know, tasks. You can teach, I always say you can teach anybody the the skills or the task you want to do, but you can't teach personality traits and values. So that's what you want to see in in an interview. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that that was your first question to kind of ask the person what they like. Um, my fiance, he had a chiropractic business in Sydney and he was sort of like, oh, like love running my business, but hate the people management. Can you help me out? And so I kind of helped him put together a bit of a hiring process and we were of the same view. We're like, well, we want people who fit our values, fit our mission and what we're trying to do. We want to build a brand. We don't just want a churn and burn kind of business. And the first thing we mm -hmm. asked people was, what do you like to do on the weekends? You know, what what are some of your passions? You want to get to know people. Um, and that's how you connect and bond with people. So I think that's fantastic uh, alongside all the other tips you said. But it's really refreshing um, to hear and see other people also taking that approach because it also gives I just think if I got asked that as a first question, I would be like, oh, you don't want to throw me some random scenario that I'm not prepared for 
and don't know how to answer you on the spot. But exactly. I love that. I love the option, the option to redo the interview, the, the you know, the, the grading about how do you feel you were best able to express yourself. I think that's all brilliant um, and a lot of really great tips for anyone listening who's involved in the hiring process. Um, uh, and and by the way, they can ask the hosts about their host about the company and about themselves, and they'll answer freely and openly. So that, that's 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 a little bit about screening. When you do training, um, um, you know, uh, people have this sort of misconception that's been around for a long time that if you put fifteen different people in a classroom and you train them for two weeks, a month, or a year, at the end of that time, they'll all be ready. And and that's that's just fantasy. Some will be ready, some will be bored, some will not be ready at all. And then you put all of them into the workplace, and in so many workplaces, when you finish training, it starts with, well, forget everything you learned in training, now we'll teach you the job. It's, that's so stupid. <laughs> We're all different. Training can Sounds start like on the same day, but it shouldn't end on the same day. I mean, that's like fantasy world. And another thing is that people want to feel you should have people feel confident when they finish training so they start their job with confidence because if they don't they'll do less well they'll have more negative feelings and and successes at the beginning and they'll tend to leave and you want people finishing their training confident and when we do training we actually manage trainees confidence as a metric we put in throwaway exercises so people can get good grades and build their confidence. We do an awful lot of things to, to move people's confidence along with their skill so that they finish training when they feel ready and not just when it when the date comes and now you've got to start work when you're ready or not. And that's something most corporations Beautiful. don't do um, either. But there's something else I wanted, I wanted to tell you that I found out only during the research I did for this book. This book took me like five years to write, but most of it was research. And there's such wonderful research coming out, strengthening the propositions I'm trying to promote. For instance, uh, three years ago, 40% of the world uh, said that they use the internet not only to compare products like uh, running shoes, Nike and Adidas or something, they use the internet 40% of the world to see what the values of those brands are, and they will decide according to the value of those brands what running shoe they're going to buy. If Nike has sweatshops or had sweatshops, well, they'll, they'll buy Adidas. And if Adidas... Now, that number's gone up to 60% within one year, and it's climbing. Wow. And diversity is becoming more and more important to everybody. People ask about it. People look at it. And, uh, and, and basically, customers will punish companies that don't hire and promote correctly. And I said before that everybody's mm. cheating. I, I just want to give you one example, and it'll probably piss you off, and it should. You have um, 600 of the largest companies in America, most of them holding conventions and posting blogs and articles about the power of gender and about how wonderful women employees are well the uh, the uh, gender parity wages gap in america a couple of years ago was 20% which basically means that a woman doing exactly the same job as a man 
during her life would probably earn 500 to 600 thousand dollars less than her male counterpart just because she's a woman now nowadays the fix is pretty much in one hour their companies will audit you and they'll tell you exactly where your gender parities are and you can immediately fix them because it's, it's a total injustice you'll agree two people doing the same thing just one happens to be female one happens to be absolutely. male absolutely and there's a right so out of those 600 companies in the past five years, how much would you say have actually had such an audit? I'm not even saying acted upon the audit's results, actually had such an audit. Out of the 600 biggest companies in America, lots of them touting the importance of gender equality and all that. So uh, make a guess then. I would love to say all 600. Uh, let's go with 50%. That would be nice. Yeah, 22%. The other... Um, yeah, 22%. The other 78% didn't even have the audit. They'll have the convention, they'll have the blogs, they'll have, and they can get away with it for one simple reason. We don't know about it, right? One thing the book is calling for is, um, is to ask companies, just by using a hashtag of diversity labels, to ask companies to have on their homepage a diversity label with the true diversity information, not only uh, uh, black people, Hispanics, it's still called in the States, uh, white people are Native uh, uh, Americans, because they're disabled people, you're not mentioning, they're ex-cons, you're not mentioning, there's, there's the gender parity wages gap you're not even relating to. If we demanded from all major brands to have that information available for us, just by using hashtag diversity labels, it would create so much pressure on these brands to actually do something and not just the lip service. I'm so tired of the lip service. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors and, and no action by the sounds of it. And um, yeah, wow, that, that's just very, very interesting to hear. I'm curious, do you have, other than obviously your business that, that you've created and grown. Do you have any examples of companies that are doing a great job, that are a really good example of the way inclusion should look in today's society? The funny thing is that there are some small companies that do a great job. When you look at major corporations, I have actually found one, an amazing one, and I'll tell you about it, but only one. The rest, it's smoke screens and lip service. The values aren't upheld. Employees don't even know what the values are. And, 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 and there's nothing real there at all. But there is one company that's amazing. No one's heard of them. And uh, I'll be really happy to tell you about them. Um, they're called Lemon Tree Hotels and they're in India. And I'll tell you why that company is amazing. Um, because the only other company uh, decided, and I'll do this briefly because I write about them in the book, the owner of the company decided that he wants to give uh, people with hearing impairments a chance to work, and he turned them into uh, a room, the, uh, the people who do the rooms, housekeeping. And he discovered that, first of all, they're very, very, very thankful for getting a job, and second of all, it enables them to marry and get a family because in India, if you don't have income, probably not going to get married. And third of all, they do a better job than able-bodied people because they're less distracted. And when he, after he did that, and they have eight, they started off their diversity um, efforts with five hotels. They now have eighty. Keep it in mind. 
Wow. Then, then they decided that in their restaurants, there are two different skills there. There's fixing everything up and all the coffee with the holes in the right direction and all the, 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 the cutlery facing the correct... There's that work. And then there's the taking orders and upselling and, and, and serving the guests. So he, he divided the waiters into able-bodied people doing the uh, taking the orders and, and that part of it. And people with cognitive disabilities doing all the, 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 the dishes and cleaning and fixing up the tables and stuff like that. So he took one job, he divided it into two, and it enabled him to bring aboard people with cognitive disabilities. And then he thought, well, you know, autumns, uh, uh, orphans in, in India, um, they finish the orphanage at 18, and then they, it's, it's drugs and prostitution. They, they have nothing to do, no prospects, nowhere to live. It, it's horrific. He takes them on at 16. He trains them and employs them for two years, pays them 10% of the real salary, puts the other 90% in savings. And then after two years, uh, they finish working for him. They get a bunch of savings they've accumulated together with, with the government. He does that. And they actually have a diploma to work in other places. And recently, that's incredible. he decided that as acid victims, women who've been disfigured because their husbands or boyfriends threw acid on their faces so they won't leave them and marry someone else. Um, he brought them into work in hospitality. Because the deep feeling in that hotel chain is we are all equal. Even two, every, every hotel has to even adopt two dogs and save two dogs. And I have <laughs> never met such a shining wonderful, wonderful, wonderful example of how the workplace should really, really be what it should feel like. Obviously, the whole staff there is hugely engaged and hugely proud of their endeavors, and they've grown tremendously. The guests love it, but you go to any hotel chain you want and suggest they put in the reception disfigured people, people who were disfigured by whatever, They'll look at you as if you really, really need help. <laughs> but it's such the correct thing to do because they're people and they need to feel like people and they need to feel that they have a place amongst us because they have a place amongst us. They're part of our communities. And we spend so much waking hours yeah. at work. It's got to reflect who we are. So Lemon Tree Hotels in India yeah. is amazing. If you're going to India, I would stay there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, um, I guess, sharing a little bit about that company. That does sound incredible um and and i They're think incredible. is a nice reflection for anybody listening i think at the end of the day this conversation uh, prompts anyone who's in you know or anyone who works in a corporation really or anybody who runs their own corporation to really critically look at well what are the business's values and how can that be expanded and opened up to you know be able to just hire people at the end of the day and not be exclusionary in that regard I quite like the fact that you spoke about the restaurant in particular and how you um because I think there's that there's definitely that practical element of saying okay well there's going to be aspects of a job that uh you know are going to work better for some types of people and other aspects of a job that are going to work better for other types of people so critically looking at your roles and working out if there's a more functional breakdown or more a more effective breakdown so that you can nurture different types of people I think is a really interesting one and one only every business is going to be able to do on their own merit. Um, and I think going back to what you were saying before about, you know, small tweaks we can do to the hiring process, things you can update on the website. Um, I did want to ask you something about the training aspect. 
Because I think maybe uh, another hurdle, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here of what a lot of people might also be thinking. They might be thinking, this all sounds incredible. It's stuff I would love to implement. But if we've got high volume staff, um, you know, we've got to train up a lot of people uh, in the thousands potentially. And they're thinking, how can we cater that so that every single person feels like their needs are met? Do you have anything to say to, I guess, how to create a little bit more of a bespoke program that doesn't feel so onerous for corporations so they can still, I guess, open themselves up to a wider range of people, if that makes sense? Because I think that might be something, it, a question it, in a lot of people's no, minds. Does. Like how do I it, kind of, it does. you know? Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense. It does. And actually, it's very profitable for corporations. The problem with, with corporations is that you have different people in charge of different things, and often the big picture is missed. Uh, you'll have someone in charge of training. And once they finish the training, the employee goes off somewhere else. And if he leaves early, and early attrition costs companies an awful lot of money, then then the HR steps in, and they have to find new employees, then send them to training. So there's no, not always the people actually look at the full picture. But it goes like this. The more you cater to individual needs, the less attrition you will have. And employee attrition, especially when it's early employee attrition, is very, very uh, uh, costly for companies costly. because it's not only it's not only the fact that someone left and you have to re you have to rehire, you have to retrain, and it's not only that, but the people the, the existing teams when people come in for a short time and then and then they leave, they also get tired of it already, and you know so so they, you know in Vietnam they didn't even leave. Uh, I mean, soldiers didn't learn the name of the new soldiers because they're not necessarily going to make it. So what's the point? Um, and sort of in the same way, that goes on in a lot of companies. But if you put more effort and money into catering and training people correctly, taking into consider their emotions and not only their skills, and another thing we're all for is social onboarding. People should be joining a team that's welcoming for them, that makes them feel at home as quickly as possible. Teams won't know how to do that unless you teach them. It's not really difficult. You sit a team down, you say, okay, everybody talk about the, the place that you've joined in your life where things were went the best for you. You felt most at home the quickest. And that becomes your do list. And then you ask them, okay, what places did you join in life? Doesn't matter the age where you felt the worst. And that would come your don't list. But then they're sort of much more ready to, to the new person joining. And the new person joining has a name. They have names. They, they, should, they should be social interactions. But when that happens, you train a bit longer, much less training altogether. Because people will leave much less than they do. They will stay much longer in the companies and at the end of the day it's much more profitable and i and i i, I do think i prove it um with, with the research and the finances in the book it's much more profitable for you to go that way because if you don't mm. you'll be losing yeah, money it kind of sounds Just, like it'll be in different departments yeah it kind of sounds like you know, and maybe initially it's like anything when you're adopting or onboarding any new process or development, like it's going to take that initial effort and, and potential cost. But in the long run, you're doing it because, A, you want to be a more social community-based company and, B, like long-term you care about the health of your, your staff. You also care about 
um, you know, productivity and, and all of that long term, I suppose, will will balance out. Um, so, yeah, I, I hear you, everything you're saying. And, and I think anybody listening who may have had thoughts start to go in their mind, I think you should definitely pick up the book so you can go into this deeper. I know there's only so much we can go into in a one hour episode. Yeah. Um, but before I let you go, I did want to ask you one thing. This question um, is not necessarily specific to marginalized groups, because I think so much of what you've shared in your book is really eye-opening for employers to consider across the board in how they treat people at the end of the day. That's what I think your mission is is asking people to do through the lens of marginalized groups, but I think the teachings can really be magnified on on a deeper level. And so I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite, I guess, tip or teaching from from your book on how um, employers can really motivate and, and care for employees to Im- improve their productivity. Okay, I think um, the, the strongest tip I have is when you employ people, there is one word that in management doesn't exist. You will not find it in research, basically, but I, I, I think it's the most important word in management, and it's called caring. And... When I try to explain that to people, I say, try to care for employees like you would like your kids to be cared for when they go and work someplace, as if they're significant. You respect them. You'd like them to be respected and and, and looked at favorably and treated well, and then they will bring their best forward. If your employees feel that you really care about them, that their manager cares about them, and that manager feels cared about Wonderful things happen. You have, I mean, wonderful things in the business side happen. But when employees don't feel cared for, then you have this huge resignation going on and you have early attrition and you have people not giving their role and you have people miserable at their jobs. We all want to feel that we are cared for as individuals. And if you can bring that, you don't have to love your employees. You just have to care for them as individuals. And if that caring yeah. is there, you'll you'll have a wonderful business. And if it isn't, good luck. <laughs> no, I think that's a I think that's a beautiful tip. And I think for anybody listening, if you can think of any place you've worked where you felt nurtured and cared for, you know how much different the way you showed up to work was, the quality really, of your work. How, exactly. How, how, how powerful much, it how is. How much more? Yeah. Yeah, how much more genuinely you wanted to just give and, and help the company genuinely, not just because you're getting paid to do it. So I think that's an interesting uh, thing to reflect on. And and like you said, I think showing that care or that nurture is, is something everyone can do. I think it's your personality at the end of the day too. People become like robots in their jobs and think, well, this is my title, I'm in this box. But you're also a person and how you care for somebody else is something you can genuinely extend. So just thinking about how that fits in with where you're working and how you can bring your own personality, I think, to a role, that's what connects at the end of the day, people to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really that's the overarching high-level uh, value in this conversation as well. And um, I'm really excited for your book to come out. I'm, I'm so inspired by the work you're doing. I think it's incredible. Um, and I'm really grateful to have had you on the show to download all your thoughts and insights um, and really excited to see, I suppose, the future of your work and, and the book as well. So firstly, thank you. Thank you, Gil, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Uh, secondly, if people want to connect with you and follow along your journey, um, 
you know, also get a copy of the book, where's the best place I can do so. And I'm going to pop links to all of that in the show notes below. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn and uh, I'll be happy to connect. And I, I, I do post there. Um, and they can find a copy of my book on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, lots of, lots of, I think lots of change, uh, have it out. Uh, you can Google it. It'll come up. And I just want to add on one thing. I, I really wanted people to read it. So I put in a lot of two things to make it interesting uh, throughout. One is there's a lot of stories about our employees and they're amazing. And the, and the stories are amazing, I think, because their life stories are amazing. But I put in an awful lot of aggravating data. For instance, the gender parity things we talked about. I'll just give you one more example. But there's an all of that just to keep you pissed off as you're reading. Um, but I'll just <laughs> give you one more example. Um, in the global 500... Just to leave everyone pissed off when they leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the global 500, <laughs> there are more senior executives named John than women. I'll say it again slowly. Wow. In the global 500, the 500 biggest companies in the world... To date, there are more uh, senior executives with the name of John than women. Those are the 500 biggest companies in the world. And we really have a ways to go, but everybody will benefit from it. So that's the main reason I brought Winning with Underdogs. We need a different workplace and, and we can all get there. Absolutely. And your book is uh, just another step for people to get there a little bit closer. So thank you so much for your work and your time. And I'm really excited to see where your mission leads you. Thank you so much, Erica, for having me.